give our attention to the reading and the hearing of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word, Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 40. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus on hearing this answered him, do not fear, only believe and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was indeed dead. But taking her by the hand, he called saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned and she got up at once and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving it to us through your prophets and apostles and spokesmen. Lord, thank you that by your spirit, you inspired them to write it so that we have it today and it is your word to us. Father, without error, fully sufficient for all of our needs. And Lord, a very word from you to us. As we come to that this morning, help us. So Lord, open our eyes to behold wondrous things. Increase our faith. And Lord, renew our hope in you. Help me, your servant, and bless your people. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in the 1900s, the mid-1900s, when Ann Landers, some of you may remember that name, Ann Landers had an advice column that ran in daily newspapers. And a woman wrote to her to tell her this story. Let me tell it to you. Dear Ann, my mother died, I was crushed, and I was sitting in her funeral service, overwhelmed with grief. In the middle of the service, the church door opened and a flustered looking young man entered and hurriedly sat down beside me, perplexed as the funeral went on, he leaned over and he whispered to me a question. Why does the minister keep calling Aunt Mary by the name Margaret? 
The woman replied, because that's her name. Her name is Margaret. No one's ever called her Mary. Well, after another whispered exchange, she says, I confirmed that this church was not the Lutheran church that he was looking for. That the Lutheran church was across the street and that he was at the wrong funeral. She goes on, the deep grief we both felt almost erupted into laughter. But the follow-up conversation we had outside the church after both services, that conversation proved to be the prelude to now 23 years of a very happy marriage. No one could have expected that outcome. No one. No one imagines two separate funerals getting tangled together to somehow produce a marriage, do they? No one expects that. What should be two separate dramas, right? Two completely terrible moments in the people's lives, right? Get intertwined in a way that no one sees coming. And the result? Well, the result is something extraordinarily beautiful like this marriage. You know, it's the same way in today's passage. As Jesus returns from his voyage to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, he's greeted by a man named Jairus, a ruler of the local synagogue. His only daughter is dying, and he desperately wants Jesus to come and to heal her. And Jesus obliges, right? But on the way there, Jairus' story, because this is Jairus' story, it gets intertwined with someone else's story. A desperate woman intrudes upon the plan, and Jesus doesn't mind. Jesus more than welcomes her, and he welcomes her interruption. And the result for her and for Jairus is something extraordinarily beautiful. What should be two separate dramas gets intertwined in a way that no one could see coming. Luke, though, Luke, the author of this gospel, he does give us some textual clues to make sure that we don't miss this, to make sure we don't miss the symmetry between these two accounts. So some of you like this kind of study, so let me walk you through just a few things. First, there's the use of the word daughter, the obvious use of it to describe Jairus's daughter, right, his child, but also the use of it in Jesus's address to the woman. Look in verse 48 daughter. There's one clue. Second, there's the interesting chronological overlap. Jairus's daughter is 12 years old, and the woman has suffered from her condition for 12 years. You see, one had 12 years of life. The other one had 12 years of misery. Another textual clue to help us see these two things go together. And lastly, there's the use of the word immediately. It's there in verses 44, 47, and 55. The woman was healed immediately, Luke tells us, and the girl got up at once, or literally in the original Greek, immediately, right? It's the same Greek word that's used in all three cases, immediately. So we see then that these two episodes are tied together by more than just their circumstance, more than just the fact that it happened while he was on his way. They're actually tied together by an important and irrevocable truth that produces something extraordinarily beautiful. And so what is that truth? Well, let's discover it together. Let's find out together. Let's begin by taking a closer look at the account of the woman 
given in verses 43 through 48. And it's a count that I'll title for you, Shame Uncovered. Shame Uncovered. If you're taking notes this morning, that's the first of two. So when the first point seems really long, don't fret. This is the first of only two points. Shame Uncovered. I'm very thankful that Luke gives this brief description at the end of verse 42 that helps us picture what the ministry of Jesus must have looked like during this time. We're, we're used to seeing pictures or we're maybe used to even imagining in our own mind that Jesus is just kind of going around with 12 people following him, right? And yet the crowds are far off. But I like what Luke tells us. They're pressing in on him, right? Jesus has all these people just collapsed around him, pressing in on him. Can't you see that in your mind? These throngs of people just trying to get to Jesus. And I, I picture the disciples are kind of like the bodyguards, right? They're kind of like, well, well, give him some room, give him some space. You've seen this before, right? Some famous person, some celebrity, some athlete, some other famous person. They've got all these people wanting to get to them, and yet there's the security standing there. No, you can't get near. I want you to have that picture in your mind because that picture, if you keep that there, makes what happens next so much more remarkable. For in this crowd around him was a woman. A woman described by Luke in verse 43 is, quote, a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. Now, according to the law, according to the Jewish law, when a woman was menstruating, she was considered unclean. During this time, she could not touch anyone. For anyone she touched would be unclean. Furthermore, no one could touch anything that she had touched, for they would become unclean. For if she was sitting in a chair, you couldn't sit in the chair after her, or you would also become unclean. During this time, menstruation time, a woman was an untouchable, an outcast of the community, even of the synagogue, not permitted to worship together with the others on the Lord's day, or here it would have been the Sabbath day. As if that isn't bad enough. Here's a woman with what can, one can only surmise to be some sort of uterine disease, perhaps something like PCOS, right? She's been experiencing a discharge of blood for 12 years. And the, the idea here that Luke paints with the words is it's an ongoing an ongoing discharge of blood for 12 years, 12 years. That is 12 years of being an unclean societal and synagogal outcast. That is 12 years without the touch of another. That's 12 years of unfathomable loneliness, 12 years of being just near enough to people, right? Just near enough to people to keep them clean. I can get this close, but I can't get any closer but having these same people afraid to get any closer to you or to her, right? Because they might become unclean themselves. Social distancing at its worst. 12 years. And then add to that, she's broke. In desperation, she had spent all her money on the doctors and the healers of the day, I took some time this week to study what would have been some of the things offered to her for healing, and whoa, <laughs> wow. I'll let you look those up. No one could heal her. 
She was what we would call absolutely helpless. Absolutely helpless. But what about this man, Jesus, the great healer? Perhaps going through her mind is the question, could he heal me? Can he heal me? Notice what happens there in verse 44. Look down there with me. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Now that took some guts. That took some guts, didn't it? I mean, she's touching him, so now he becomes unclean, right? We'll put air quotes around that because Jesus can't become unclean. But she's really stepping out here. I'm thinking of that crowd around her again. Everyone knows who she is. You don't live in a small community like this for 12 years with the same problem, people not know who you are. I sometimes wonder, like, as people saw her coming close, were they like, nope, get away from her, don't touch her. Did she sneak in? All kinds of questions here. But she presses in just enough, just so she's able to touch the fringe, the very tail end of his garment. She's just desperate enough to try it anyway. Can he heal me? And then, bam, right? That, that's what we're supposed to get out of it. Bam, immediately. The moment she touches Jesus, she's healed. The blood flow ceased. She's restored. Her desperate faith had paid off. No longer does she have to live under the pale of her shame. She's no longer the quote unquote woman with the discharge. She's now, quote, the woman who was healed. I mean, if the story ended there, it'd be a great one. We might even clap, right? Like, yes, praise God. But Jesus isn't done with her yet, is he? Jesus isn't done with her. Notice what he does in verses 45 and 46. He calls her out. He calls her out. She just wanted to hide, the text tells us. She just wanted to kind of hide away, but Jesus calls her out. He perceived that someone had touched him for he felt the healing power go out from him. And I like Peter's response. You can just picture him, right? Like, uh, master, there's all kinds of people around here touching you. Surely someone has touched you. Like, just go on, let's get to Jairus' house. There's, there's other things to do. But then Jesus, no, he's, he stops. He turns to the crowd. Someone touched me. Can you picture her face? I just... Someone touched me. He wants this woman to come forward. It's all part of his plan. He wants her to come forward. I believe that's why he healed her when she touched him. Many people touched him, and it's not some superstition that if you just touch him or get a hold of some garment that he wore at some time, which is locked away in some monastery somewhere, you might be healed too. That's not what this is. This is all part of his plan. Jesus wants her to come forward, and she does. Trembling and in fear, Luke tells us, she comes and she bows down before him in the presence of all and she tells her story. I touched him and he healed me. I touched him and he healed me. Now, if you think about this whole thing, there's part of us that probably thinks this is unnecessary, right? Like, come on, Jesus, come on. Hasn't the woman been through enough? I mean, she spent so long hiding away from community, masking her shame, why make her come forward and stand again in front of everyone like this? 
She's used to being the one on display. Why do it again? You know why? Because Jesus wants to uncover her shame. He's not shaming her. He wants to set her free from shame. In fact, look what he says there in verse 48. He says there is something that we never see recorded that he says again any other time in the scriptures. He looks at her and he calls her daughter. He looks at her and he calls her daughter. You see, not only has he healed her in an instant, but in an instant, he stripped her of all her shame. He's placed her before the community and he's publicly declared her as the one who has been adopted by faith into the family of God. This one is one of you. This one is a a child of God, the daughter of the king. This one belongs to me. Her desperate faith had made her well. Literally in the Greek, it says made her well if you're using the ESV, but literally it saved her. By faith, she is saved. Ed Welch, he's a pastor, author, biblical counselor. He wrote an excellent book that I recommend to all called Shame Interrupted. And he makes a a helpful observation about this account there. I'll I'll read you part of it. He says, he's talking about guilt versus shame. And he says that guilt lives in the courtroom where you stand alone before the judge, but shame lives in the community. Though the community can often feel like a courtroom. The community says you don't belong. You are unacceptable, unclean, and disgraced. He goes on, the shamed person often feels worthless, expects rejection, and needs cleansing, fellowship, love, and acceptance. And he finishes up this way. That's why this woman is a heroine of the faith. She teaches us that desperation is one of the main ingredients of faith. Faith means that you need healing, that you can't do it yourself, and you're confident that Jesus is the hands-on healer. Faith is your response to Jesus. And then Ed finishes this way, don't worry about making him unclean. He's the holy one. And holiness always trumps uncleanness. She's a heroine of the faith. Do you know shame? Ed making a distinction there between guilt and shame. We're not talking about guilt here necessarily. We're talking about shame. This is something that had happened to her, right? This isn't a result of her sin. We're told we're told it's something that happened to her. We can bear shame for the things that we've done and the things that have been done against us, right? But we all know shame. Whether it's shame because of our sin or shame from something else, we know it. But listen, Jesus offers us hope in our shame. He offers us hope. And this is where we begin to see clearly the great truth that we're looking for in this passage. In utter desperation, in our separation from others, even in the darkest recesses of our hearts and minds, when we find ourselves, when we acknowledge that we are completely helpless to uncover our own shame, by faith, when we look to Jesus, the light of Jesus breaks through and makes us whole. He strips us of our shame and he stands us up before all as a display of his grace and a display of his power. He shows us to all as fully redeemed and fully restored, fully forgiven, fully 
a child of the king. And that's really great. It's an understatement of the day, right? That's really great. As great as that is, there's even more. There's even more in the passage before us where we cannot forget the other intertwined story, right? The story of Jairus. So we're gonna come to our second and final point this morning. And I've called this one death undone. Death undone. Just as Jesus is speaking his words of restoration to the woman, someone from Jairus' house comes with devastating news. You can see it there in verse 49. Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. I hope you can hear the helplessness in those words. It's almost like, it's over, Jairus. Leave Jesus alone. Nothing else can be done. She's gone. She's dead. But Jesus is about to change all that, isn't he? He's about to change it. Look what he says in verse 50. Let's look there again together. Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. So now we can see more clearly why these two stories are indeed paired together and perhaps why Jesus took so long to get to Jairus' house. It was all in God's providence. If, if Jesus had wanted to, Jesus could have healed Jairus' daughter from afar, couldn't he? Have we seen that already? Of course, he healed the centurion's daughter that way. He, he didn't have to enter into the home. He had done it before, he could do it again. But instead, he follows Jairus home and along the way, he performs a, a healing miracle that, that demonstrates the power of faith. Now Jesus will give a more complete demonstration of his saving power. And the first miracle helps Jairus do what Jesus calls him to do in verse 50. Jairus witnessing the miracle of this woman healed helps him to trust Jesus's power to perform another miracle. He's essentially calling this person who came from the house and Jairus himself, have faith, have faith. Now put yourself in Jairus's sandals. That had to be hard to hear. It must've seemed impossible. So if I just have faith and she's not gonna be dead anymore. Think about that in the, in the midst of his intense grief, Something else is at work. If you've grieved, you know what it is. It's fear. Fear is clutching his heart. I know all of you know fear, whether it's because of grief or something else. We all know fear. Jesus is telling him not to fear. Jesus tells him to have faith. Faith is the antithesis of fear. Fear and faith always stand in opposition to one another. That means that we have a choice to make. Either we can be afraid of all the things that might go wrong or have gone wrong, or we can trust Jesus to see us through. That's the crossroads that Jairus is at. And you and I face this choice in life all the time, don't we? Even in our deepest moments of fearful helplessness, we face this choice. Some examples, am I afraid of what might happen to my kids? Always fretting about their physical and spiritual safety or do I faithfully entrust them to God's fatherly care? Am I afraid of what people will say if I stand up for Jesus? Or do I trust that God will be with me and see me through and vindicate his name? Am I afraid of losing everything I own? Or do I trust God to provide what I truly and really need? Here's another. 
Am I afraid that I will never get what I want out of life? Or do I trust God to give me the desires of his heart? In each and every fearful situation, Jesus calls us to trust him. Just as he calls Jairus to trust him here. And the result, the result for Jairus is wonderful, right? I mean, Jesus arrives at the house and he takes no one in. This is where Jesus starts to narrow his circle a little bit as he starts to more intently teach his disciples. And he brings in Peter and John and James, as well as Jairus and his wife, right? And all around them, outside and everywhere, everyone's weeping and grieving. What does Jesus do? He shatters all of that and calls her back to life. Do you notice how everyone responded in verse 53? He's like, ah, she's, she's not dead. She's just sleeping. They're like, we know dead, Jesus. <laughs> like, we know, she's dead, dead, right? They laughed. <laughs> I laugh sometimes too, right? When I hear these wonderful things that God has done, what can you, you're like, <laughs> really? Like, whoa, really? He did. He did. People laugh at the words of Jesus all the time. People laugh at us when we say we believe in the words of Jesus. We should be like him, completely unaffected. He takes her by the hand. Talitha kum, right? Child, arise. Child, arise. And what happens? She gets up immediately. And I love what he does here. <laughs> Give her something to eat. You want proof she's really alive? Give her something to eat and watch her eat. I like to eat. That makes me happy, right? Give her something to eat. And Jesus is saying, this isn't a trick. This is real. I have the power over death. I've been given the keys. I have that. Remember, this is part of what Luke is building up in this chapter, how Jesus reigns over all earthly and other spiritual powers. He reigns over death. Death stands no chance when it faces Jesus. And so this is good news, not only for those who witness this miracle, but it's good news for us as well. Death does not get the final word. By faith in Jesus, we can stare death in the face and say, I have no fear of you. For Christ has given me life and my spirit will be with him in heaven until the day he returns to restore my earthly body in glory. I'm not afraid of you, death. In Christ's victory, I, we have victory as well. So likewise, when we come face to face with the many fears that we encounter in this life, when we find ourselves in the pit of despair, feeling maybe like Jairus, utterly helpless, we can answer the call to faith. The call to believe that Jesus is greater than our circumstances. Jesus is greater than our enemies. And that only Jesus can deliver us safely home to heaven with him. And listen, we're still gonna encounter trials and hardships and struggles. Many of you are facing them now, but we have to hold fast to the truth that we don't face them alone. Jesus is with us. He will deliver us, if not in this life, then certainly in the one to come. Even when we are most helpless, he remains our one true and everlasting hope. And Jesus never stops calling us to faith in that hope. For such hope is indeed this hope 
is indeed that important and irrevocable truth that we've been searching for this morning. Simple, hope, hope, and hope that is extraordinarily beautiful. We're reminded in Hebrews 11.1 of this, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's a fitting reminder as we draw things to a close this morning. When we come to Jesus by faith, whether to be set free from a pail of shame or to be delivered from our greatest fears or something else, when we come to Jesus by faith, we demonstrate our absolute trust in him to do for us what we cannot do on our own. When we come to Jesus by faith, we cling to hope, the hope he freely offers to helpless people like you and me. So brothers and sisters, I I wanna close this way. We live in a world that believes this lie. God helps those who help themselves. You heard that before? I mean, isn't it amazing how many people think this is actually a quote from scripture? It's not. You can look it up and come to me later. It's not. You can search for it. You won't find it. I mean, God does honor and reward hard work done in his name. That's true. Of course. But what hope would there be if God waited for us to help ourselves before he stepped in to help us? So my kids are gonna laugh because I have time to share the story. The other day I was driving out near Canyon and James and they're doing all kinds of work cutting down trees. And uh, I stopped at the stop sign, I needed to make a right turn. And there was a guy there working, doing some tree cutting by himself. And he's at the top of a hill and I need to turn and go down that hill where there's oftentimes cars flying up the hill at like 50 or 55 miles an hour. And, you know, being the ultra cautious driver that I am, you can laugh. Think of those of you who've ridden with me. I'm like, I don't feel comfortable making this turn. So I kind of pulled in behind him and I rolled down my window and I said, hey man, can you help me out? You know, I'm thinking in my head, usually there's a flagger here, right? There's someone telling me it's okay to go. And he looks at me and no kidding says, you can do it yourself. Actually, for Ben's sake, he looked at me and said, you can do it yourself. And I think I said, bless you, brother. You know, may God be with you. I rolled up my window and I said, this car accelerates pretty well. And I went for it and I'm still here and my car is still intact outside. But it's one of those moments that we can relate to and say, you know, I was kind of helpless in that moment and I was grasping for help from someone who should be able to offer it. And what did I get? Nothing. God's not that way, brothers and sisters. He is hope for the helpless and he's help for the helpless. He hears us when we cry out to him. He hears us and he responds. Maybe not in the time that we want. We're not gonna spend the next 30 minutes nuancing that. But he has and he will respond After all, that's the good news of the gospel, isn't it? When we were yet helpless sinners, what? Christ died for us. He left the glories of heaven to help us. He left to uncover our shame and undo the effects of death upon us. He came to give hope for the helpless and everlasting joy and peace to all those who would come to him in faith. And what we're left to do there is praise God for such a wonderful gift. Amen? And amen. Would you grab your-